It's Triple J. It is the Science Hour with Dr. Carl and Dr. Linda this morning. How are you, Carl? Uh, ever so peachy keen, Dr. Linda. Ah, that's good. Should we get into it? In. All right. Sarah from Perth has got our first science question for the week. Sarah, what's up? Hello. How are you going? Peachy keen. <laughs> Perfect. Um, I just have a question. I have um, systolically quite low blood pressure under 100. But I find if I have beetroot, so roasted beetroot or beetroot juice, I drop it to sort of 85 on 45. Ah. Uh, number one, uh, how did you know that you have low blood pressure? Do you have a blood pressure monitor at home? I'm an emergency nurse. <laughs> right. Number two, does it interfere with your daily life in that when you suddenly stand up from a low-lying chair, do you suddenly find yourself faint for a few seconds or does it not no. bother you? No, it doesn't ah. bother me at all. Okay, uh, just a little handy hint, by the way. If you go to Germany, try not to go into a hospital because they treat low blood pressure as a disease and will hang on to you until you get it high enough. Okay. <laughs> okay, now with regard to the beetroot, it turns out that at some stage beetroot is going to be turned into a superfood. Yeah, I know. It's like turning potatoes into a superfood or no, bananas. beetroot is amazing. I love beetroot, but, mate, the whole superfood concept is weird. Now, it implies that this one food mm. will cure sunstroke, syphilis, varicose veins, make your handwriting better and get you an extra hot date tomorrow. Um, no, <laughs> beetroot doesn't do that. But beetroot does have some chemicals that if taken in high quantities, does seem to help athletes. Now, okay. there is a downside. There always is a downside. We're not too sure what the downside is yet, but we know it'll come. Uh, but So some of these chemicals make your metabolism, uh, your oxidative metabolism more efficient. So you can be a better endurance performer with beetroot juice. I'm guessing that the chemicals involved, and this is just fairly new in the last couple of years, are also doing something to your blood pressure. Whether we've worked out that pathway or not, we don't. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that that's a pathway by which your blood pressure goes lower when you take the beetroot juice. So if you go just chasing up the so-called sports benefits of beetroot juice, you'll find all of these wonderful chemicals being mentioned, and I'm sure that that's the pathway that will give you the answer in a few years or so. Uh-huh. So keep at it. Yes. Thank you for your call, Sarah. If you have a science question this morning, give us a call, one three hundred O triple five three six. Now heading to New South Wales. Jess, what's your science question? Hi, guys. How are you? Great. <clears throat> um, I was just wondering, sometimes when I go to bed, my feet go really, really numb. I was just wondering why that is. It could be that as you're going to bed, and this happens to me sometimes, that it's really comfortable just to plunk your body part down and then just forget about it, whether it's an arm at a certain angle or a hand under a pillow or one leg on the other, and you can accidentally be really comfortable and at the same time be compressing a nerve. Why? And, and then after a while, you suddenly realise, oh, my gosh, I am compressing the nerve, and then that kind of wakes you up. But you might not even notice that you could be so far down a pathway of going to sleep that you actually fall asleep with the compressed nerve. And luckily there are backup systems that will wake you up slightly when you're asleep and make you change your position. And these backup systems work unless you've had huge amounts of alcohol. But normally you should be perfectly fine. So I see that sometimes with my hand, I just sort of move it. I think, oh, my God, I've moved my hand. I suddenly realise it is numb. I've had it stuffed under the pillow. Mm. And by the way, right. do not have too much alcohol. They call it Saturday night palsy. I've talked about this before, where you go out for the night drinking and you have too much and you drink so much alcohol that you're heading towards not just a sleep but almost an anaesthetic-like sleep. You fall asleep on the lounge watching TV with your arm over the back of the cushion, over the couch, and underneath the 
arm is a nerve and you fall asleep with that nerve being compressed by the weight of your arm, which is perfectly normal. And you would, if all things being normal, you would move that. But because you've been so heavily anaesthetised, you end up being paralysed in the morning, you go to casualty and you are paralysed either temporarily or permanently. Don't drink too much alcohol. I'll tell you what, after, being, after drinking that much, I definitely do feel like I am paralysed. <laughs> <laughs> Does that lead to, like, uh, really long-term stuff, Carl? It can lead to permanent paralysis if your period during which you're compressing the arm is more than six hours. If it's, say, 10 or 15 hours, you've had a huge amount of alcohol and you're sleeping for 15 hours, well, you might not get back full function of that arm. Whoa. All right. Well, speaking of sleeping... Here's a question. Yes. Peter from Menai, what's your science question this morning? Uh, good morning, Carl. Good morning. Dr. Linda. My, my question is a two-part question on yawning. first part, why do we yawn? And the second part is, it seems to be contagious. If I see someone yawn, I will yawn. If I'm speaking to somebody on the phone and I detect that they yawn at the other end of the phone, I will yawn. Since I've rung this morning about this yawning, I've yawned nine times thinking about it. Why? <laughs> Ah, okay, now this is an oldie but a goldie, but we'll do it for those who haven't heard it before. Firstly, why do we yawn? It is not related to having a low oxygen environment because Robert Provine, P-R-O-V-I-N-E, who is the world expert on yawning, he has done experiments feeding people not just the regular 20% oxygen that we normally breathe, but 100%, and still they yawn. Sure, you'll yawn when you're tired, but you'll also yawn when you're really ready for something big and major. And just look at musicians about to go on stage or athletes. Now, these athletes have trained for the Olympics. They've done four years of training. They have not wasted the four years of training by going out drinking and staying up late the night before their 100-metre sprint. And yet, if you look at the athletes, either on football fields, before they go on, they will yawn. So it's some sort of subconscious preparation, and we think the reason comes to us from evolutionary biology, which is a way of bonding the group. I'm yawning, you're yawning, we're all part of the group, we all belong, I will protect you because you yawn with me, which then answers the second part of the question. Why is yawning contagious? Thanks to various studies we've done, we're pretty sure that yawning is easily caught if, two-part here, one, you are kind and compassionate, and two, you can show it. So you might be really kind, but you've got a bit of shyness and you hold it in. And as a result, you don't express to other people and superficially, you don't catch yawns. So you, Peter, having yawned even by talking about yawning yourself, you prove that you are kind and compassionate and can show it. What a judge of character. Next time you meet someone, do a yawn, (laughs) do the yawn test. If they yawn back at you, they're kind and compassionate. If they don't... Oh, they're a bit, they might be but, a bit of a jerk. But, Linda, how do you time it so that <laughs> you don't yawn after they've said something like, hi, isn't it amazing that, and you go, oh, oh you, I mean, so you know what, boring. Yeah, that's right, you've got to time it, maybe you time it that you yawn when you're speaking, so that way you take it upon yourself to be humble. Yeah, you've got to work out a good system. one three hundred o triple five three six with your science questions. We'll squeeze in another one. Uh, Zane from Wagga, what's your question? Morning, doctors. Dr. Zane, welcome. Hello, how are you guys? So... I'm just wondering, I know that with science and the way that everything's going, they've been able to regrow ears and other appendages off mouse in labs, off mice in labs. What is the possibility of regrowing a limb? Very high, once we understand what the heck is going on with the DNA. It began many years ago when we discovered that creatures called salamanders 
when they lose a limb, can grow back the entire limb right down to the same arrangement of claws and scales, etc., right from the arm right down to the very tip of their arm. With kids, with human kids, what you can do is if they lose the tip of the finger when they're very young, they can actually grow it back again. When they get older, they can't. We started on this about 30 years ago, discovering by looking at the salamanders that the salamanders had floating in space around the tip of the amputated limb a a field, an electric field, which they called the stump current. And they could then manipulate this electric field to be bigger or smaller. And if they made it bigger, the limb would grow back faster. If they made it smaller, it would grow back slowly. Now, that is one part of it. The real major part is the DNA. Now, all the information needed to grow another limb is there in virtually every cell of your body that has DNA. What about osteonecrosis? Would that affect it? Would what? Sorry? Osteonecrosis. Would that affect the possibilities? You mean after the limb has died? Yeah. Oh, hang on. You mean after the person has died? After the limb has died. Okay. If the limb has died, it doesn't matter. So suppose the limb has died, say, from your elbow down. So you chop it off and you've still got the bit from the shoulder and the information needed to grow everything from the elbow out is still there in the DNA. But in 2018, we do not know where that information is or how to tickle it into action. And this is what we will discover, and we'll use all sorts of genetic engineering tools, one of them being, of course, CRISPR, which is all over the place, and that's, there'll be other things better than CRISPR. So it will come, but not tomorrow. Now, Flick from Melbourne, you have a science question this morning. What is it? Um, hey, guys, how you doing? Mm. Um, so the other day I was roasting a chicken, and once the smell of the chicken filled the house, my toddler started to make noises like he was hungry. And I was just wondering when they make that uh, connection between smell and hunger, when they start to smell the food. Ah, they can definitely smell you. They prefer the smell of you as opposed to another human being. And if we get you to wear a T-shirt and another random female who has a baby to wear a T-shirt, they will prefer the T-shirt that you wore to that other person so they can pick up smell from a very early age. In fact, let's take it right to the max, smell is the basic um, sense. We have a whole bunch of senses like vision and hearing, blah, 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 blah. And forget about synesthesia, that's too hard right now. But every living creature has a sense of smell, right down to the bacteria. Now, a bacteria is just a single cell, so it doesn't have a nose stuck on the side, but it does smelling. So what you do when you smell, you go and you draw in the air, it rises in your nose and goes to an area called the olfactory epithelium, and then molecules from the chicken or a dead person or a lion about to attack you or whatever, molecules land on your olfactory epithelium and they send electrical signals to your brain and things happen. In the case of bacteria and every creature between bacteria and us, there is a place where smells or chemicals from the outside world can land and be processed and then change the behaviour of that creature. So in the case of a bacterium, it'll go, ah, food, and it'll go there, or something that attacked me once before and it'll go away from it. Bacteria have memory and that's the basis behind... CRISPR. So they do it from a very early age. Okay, cool. Thank you so much. Uh, how old is your baby, by the way? Um, he's just turned one. Oh, okay. So he's eating mushed up, solidy. Yeah, yeah. 
Right, but he wants roast chicken now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't have a lot of teeth, right? He does, actually. Freeze he does? Yeah. Oh, good on him. Yeah. Who wants the good stuff? Okay. Uh, we're taking your science questions this morning. Thank you, Flick. Thank now, you Luke Flick. from Orange, what's your question, Dr. Luke? G'day, how are you going? Good. Very good, Dr. What's Luke? your question? That's good. Um, I had an impact a few years ago, uh, sorry, an eye impact injury where um, it detached the retina. I've got it fixed and stuff. I, um, but then I found sometimes that one eye, I've got two really distinct clear blue eyes, but one of them turns grey and it was the one that had the impact injury. And I was wondering why that would happen. I looked a bit like, looked a bit like David Bowie because they've changed so much. Wow. Okay, firstly, um, the colour of the eyes is not generated from within. It's not as though you have a light shining out. The Egyptians used to think that the eyes generated vision. But in fact, they're receivers. That's number one. Get that one out of the way. Number two, uh, the colour of the iris, we're not talking about the white part, but the coloured part around the black hole, which is the pupil. So you've got the black hole, the pupil, then the coloured part called the iris, then the white part called the sclera. Forget everything except for the the iris. The colour of the iris is due to uh, chemicals called melatonin. Yep. No, melanin, melanin being laid down in different densities and the higher the density, the darker it is. So you start off as a baby often with light blue eyes and you work your way into darker colours. That's number yep. two. Number three, people often say that their eyes change colour, but it often depends on the ambient lighting. The real way to do it is to have a colour patch. And this is a calibrated photographic colour patch and it's got the colours of the rainbow and they're all printed on very special paper with non-fading dye, blah, 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 blah. And then you take a colour, a a photograph, and depending on the ambient lighting, which might be the red of a nightclub, the sort of the colour of fluoro lights or very blue LEDs or warm LEDs, and the colour patch will come up different each time. And so too will the iris. Now, you're a different case. You've got one eye to compare it against. Yeah. Yeah. So now I do not... Firstly, I'm trusting you as a straight uh, valid witness, right? Because what you see is what you get. But number two, I can't see a pathway whereby a detached retina, which is at the back of the eye, about 25 millimetres away from the iris, is affecting the iris. Now, but I'm not a specialist. The people who are are the ophthalmologist and optometrist. So if one of them is listening, so Linda, what number should they ring to ring in with an answer? One three hundred oh triple five three six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and by the way, if if you could be bothered and put yourself in line for winning a prize, what yep. you could do is get hold of one of these special photographic color patches and take photographs of your eye. Yep. And so you, always you've got the standard colour patch and then you just manipulate it in Photoshop until you've got the right colour. And then you can say, my God, Luke wasn't lying. This eye, yeah, yeah. which had the injury, is different in colour from the other eye, which did not. And so we've got yep. photographic proof and we're helped by the colour patch, which gives us a reference. Over to you, Dr. Luke. Okay, perfect. Yeah, right. no, I could try that, definitely. Well, thanks very much for that. Thank you. Keep listening. A, a little bit of homework for Luke. And we're going to another Luke, actually, this morning. Luke ah. from Geelong. What is your science question? Good morning, doctors. Um, My question is that when I eat a meal, say breakfast, lunch or dinner, uh, no matter how bland or spicy the food is, my nose will run 
out of control. Ah. Now, you and I share a similar thing, but mine's slightly different. Um, if I have a meal and then I stop while I'm still hungry, which sounds crazy, but it's what some of the um, running trainers recommend, I don't get this condition, and I'm going to give you the fancy name for it, gustatory. So gustation, you know, gustation meal. Yep. Gustatory is an adjective. Rhine-itis. Rhine, R-H-I-N, as in rhinoceros, as in nose. Itis means state of, or no, inflammation of. Rhinitis, gustatory rhinitis means inflammation of the nose, some way related to eating. In other words, in my case, when I eat too much, my nose will run. Now, What's this, and I haven't looked up on Wikipedia, so this is heading for homework. It was the case with you. Is it, suppose you just have a bite and then you walk away. Does your nose run, or do you have to eat until you're full? Uh, I would suppose it'd be yeah, more a meal till I'm full. So, so a good example is if I have a bowl of porridge in the morning. By the time I finish that bowl of porridge, my nose will be running out of control. But what and if you have all, half a and bowl? And it's all food. Uh, yeah, it's it's all food. So if I eat a sandwich for lunch, or if I eat a bowl of pasta for dinner, or salad or yeah ah and what if you have half a bowl now and then half a bowl later what happens i i would have to try that i'm not ah. sure see what we're doing linda in medicine you call this buff and turf we b- bounce it back onto them we're forcing them to do the <laughs> yeah, experiment do the taking one. the load off <laughs> us but that's really worthwhile doing luke if you could do that and then ring us back in a couple of months and keep a written record don't rely yep. on memory and then i'll go chasing this up for homework for next week okay sounds thank good thank you thanks. dr luke you know, Dr. Right, Carl, my nose runs uh, when I have soup. Really? Mm, when I have, like, hot soup. Hot Only soup. when I have hot soup. What if you have cold soup or fruit soup? What's fruit soup? Somebody gave it to me once <laughs> and they said, here's <laughs> soup, but it's got fruit in it. And I said, I've never had it. And he said, yeah, it's fruit soup. <laughs> what was it? Soup that's cold with fruit in it. I suppose tomato soup is technically fruit soup, isn't it? Yeah, then you're in, in the... Uh, okay, so was get, getting back to you. Yeah, so sorry. if you're having hot soup, what if you have half a bowl and then walk away? Do you I still don't know. Get it? So, you know, you're buffing in whatever that ba- term Buffer was. and turf. Buffer buff, and so buff, I, I shine it up and then turf means I'll throw it away onto somebody else. Okay, throw it onto me. I'll do the experiment. Next time I have soup, I'll stop halfway through and see if my nose runs. Excellent. Kurt from Blacktown, what's your science question this morning? Uh, okay, here you go. Dr. Kurt, Welcome. Oh, thank you. Um, whenever I go to the gym, and I do a pretty intense workout for more than an hour. Uh, whenever I leave, it's not while I'm at the gym, it's after I leave the gym, I get in my car and I start to drive. Um, everything looks like I'm on LSD. So is there a time dilation or does vision appear to be sort of timey-wimey, wobbly, like you're looking at um, a, a rubber sheet that's been manipulated to go funny? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Like the road starts looking all wavy and really, really intense, vivid. And how is your hearing? Is that uh, altered my, as well? Are you listening to music in the car? Not, not so much my hearing. I just go like a little bit deaf. Like my my hearing sort of fades. And how long does this last for? About an hour. And you're doing what one session every two days or every yep. day? Every, and is this for, so each time you go there, you do upper body and lower body? Um, I do arms and shoulders one day and then back and legs and other parts of my back and then arms. 
Right. And how long does it last for, this An hour. Feeling? An hour. Okay. Um, there are many things not understood about exercise physiology. I was talking with an exercise physiologist the other day, actually trying to find out after my daughter had, evil daughter, had taken me through a whole bunch of buttock exercises and leg exercises, and I went through with them, and I said, this is not doing anything for me, nothing. And she said, I'm feeling it, aren't you feeling it, Dad? I said, no, nothing, nothing. Mate, on days two, three, and four... I was in massive awareness of, of, of tightness and pain and I asked the exercise physiologist and he said, we don't know. Don't know why there is that delay. We know it's real and in my case, very real for three days, no idea why. So I, I certainly remember when I was doing the really intense pumping iron that you'd feel like you were bigger and wider. You'd have to sort of twist your body sideways to come out of the gym and you'd just feel bigger in all dimensions. And occasionally I'd have that sort of disturbance of vision while I was actually in the gym. I'm reckoning that what is happening is a variant on, here comes the magic phrase, synesthesia. S-Y-N-A-E-S-T-H-E-S-I-A. We're doing research on it around Australia, Macquarie University, Sydney University. And what synesthesia is telling us that we do not have our senses as separate, but they're intermingled. The classic extreme case is that a pianist such as Messi, a composer, would sit at the piano and with his fingers, tinkle his fingers on the keyboard of the piano and see bubbles of colour floating in front of him. And then would just adjust the tinkling of his fingers until the bubbles looked right. Forget about what they sounded like. So I think you've got something where being fed into your overall sensory system is something from your senses in your body where you've pushed your muscles really hard, and you did mention that, and it's coming through as another input into the synesthetic system. So it's not just the vision or the sound or the smell, but it's internal from your body being fed into it, and then it fades away after a while. So... I can, if you leave your number, I can put you in contact with one of the people I know, and you might be in that one percent of population who have a moderate synesthetic thing happening. Except in your case, you'd be the first one I've ever heard of who does it from internally rather than externally. Jeez. Wow, you're Kurt, special. Will you you are on, special. Will you hang on the line, our special Kurt? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, okay, wow. hang on. Special Dr. Kurt from Blacktown this morning. Now to more science questions on one three hundred O triple five three six. Jade from Tremoyne. Hi. Hi. What's your question? So you know when you drink fizzy drink, you get that weird like if you have it a bit too quickly, you get that weird feeling in your nose and it kind of hurts and you got to scrunch your face up. Mm-hmm. Um, I get that out of absolutely nowhere for no reason, not while I'm drinking or eating, just randomly like. Just had it whilst I was driving. So I was wondering what that is, if you know what it is. Um, I've heard about it. I'm not entirely convinced that what I've heard is sensible, but this is what I've heard. The claim is that the fizzy drinks, um, we're talking soft drinks here, maybe soda water to make it as simple as possible, is slightly acidic due to the carbonic acid, and this is enough to irritate your tissues. Right. Has, did you ever have in the past a case where you did end up getting some of it splashing in your nose and you got irritated by it? Uh, I've had it whilst I've been drinking fizzy drinks, but more so I get it when I'm just like not doing anything at all, like not drinking anything, not eating anything, like out of nowhere. Okay, well, there's a whole bunch of possibilities. The main one is that we don't know. Right. Number two is there could be some sort of conditioning yeah. that 
when you ended up getting the fizzy stuff up your nose, something else was going on and you associated the two of them. So some of my friends who are in the book publishing trade um, went to a Christmas party, had champagne, which they have all the time and they love at Christmas parties, had some bad prawns, vomited, and now they hate this. They've accidentally conditioned themselves into hating champagne. Oh, no, that's awful. uh, I'm talking real (laughs) champagne. Right? This is you know, lush budget end of year book party thing, right? So th- that's a second possibility. Right. Um, third one, I don't know, I'd mention it to your GP sure. and then let them have a look at the overall you. Okay. And then maybe they'll find something I can't find over the air. Sure. Okay. De- de- definitely so go much. to the GP. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. I actually love that fizzy feeling, Dr. Carl. Um, I'm it loving it too. A bit, you know, yeah, and it's a gentle sting, and it's yeah. not too bad. It's sort of like the one that you get with wasabi, which is better than the one that you get with yes. curry because the wasabi one comes and then it goes. Oh, thank God, I got past <laughs> it. Now let me do it again. It's a little bit fun. It's a lot of fun. All right, now we're going to Doctor Zane in Petersham. What's your science question this morning? Awesome. Hey, doctors. Um, so pretty much, I was wondering. I've uh, been watching a few things on time dilation. Um, so obviously the faster you get to the speed of light, the time changes and mass also. Um, so I was wondering if time as we experience it is only relative to us here on Earth. Yes. Uh, so you're quite right in your reference to Albert Einstein. As you travel more quickly and as you get closer to the speed of light, depending on how close you are to the speed of light, time slows down a lot your mass slash momentum increases a lot and your length shrinks a lot. In the case of the Large Hadron Collider, the particles that are travelling around the Large Hadron Collider at 99.999991% of the speed of light, those particles have their time slowed down so that one second for them is 11 months for us. So on Earth, we've got our time ticking at what we think is one second per second. But if you go to that fabulous movie Interstellar, and they go onto a planet which is in orbit around a black hole, the gravitational field is so high that I think a few, a few days for them was several years back on Earth. Well, what, what, was it something like that, Linda? There it was, was something th- like that, but then someone went away and they came back and the people in the ship were really old, but that person had an age, like it was like 50 years had passed or something. Yeah, it was years versus weeks. So you, you did, right? In, for most of the universe, we do not have the extreme conditions uh, that occur around black holes, unless, of course, it turns out accidentally that black holes are the cause of the dark matter, but that's almost certainly not correct. So you're right, time depends on where you are, and if somebody is upstairs from you in a building, they are ageing at a different rate from you. But we can measure it with our atomic clocks, but, but with an ordinary watch, forget it. Right, okay. Well, I was just going to say, so like, obviously we've got the uh, Milky Way Andromeda, you know, that collision. Would that change in velocity affect us here on Earth, or is that still those proportions that are insignificant to change that? Insignificant. So um, we're on a galaxy called the Milky Way. Another galaxy called Andromeda is going to collide with us in a couple of billion years. Um, It'll have virtually zero effect uh, to the individual stars and planets. They won't even know that it's happening unless you look in the night sky and then you see, hey, the sky is different from what it was a billion years ago. But apart from that, nothing. It is Triple J. Now we're jumping to Adelaide. Reese. what's your science question? Hey, I've got a question regarding aluminium and heat. My old mm-hmm. man's a motorcycle mechanic, and to get a bearing into a crankcase, he heats it with a blowtorch. But when he heats it with a blowtorch, the aluminium sweats, 
And the technical terms, well, they, in the tech, they call it sweating in the bearing because it's the aluminium sweats and the bearing drops in. Why does the aluminium sweat? Oh, my God. I have heard that phrase over many years. Uh, okay, so a bit of a background here, Linda, for you. There's three sorts of fits where you're trying to fit something into something else, like a, a ball into a hole. You can have a loose fit, a perfect fit, or an interference fit. Mm. A loose fit is you shove the ball in a hole and there's half a millimetre on each side and it rattles around. A perfect fit is where it just you, you just slide it in and you manage to get a dead square and, mate, it doesn't move at all. You can just push it in with your fingers, but you've got to get a dead square. An interference fit is where the ball is bigger than the hole. And so what you do is you heat up the hole with a blowtorch and it expands. Then you shove the ball in there and then it shrinks down. And that's called an interference fit. And it's called sweating it in. I, I didn't know that sweating it in refers to the sweat that comes off the aluminium. So let me get this straight. Uh, little droplets of some sort of liquid appear to come out of the aluminium when it's heated up yeah. with a blowtorch? Yeah, that's correct. Can you catch these little droplets and let them cool down and see what they are? Oh, they, you can touch them on your finger, but they tend to evaporate quite quickly. Man, I don't know. What we need is, is like somebody a from a tape coach. like a water that comes out of it. I have no idea. I love it. I want to see a picture of it. I want to see a picture of it. I want to see a YouTube of it. So the sweat, so there's a sort of little drops of sweat that come off aluminium when you heat it up for the purpose of expanding a hole so you can shove something in for an interference fit. Yeah. And it's called sweating in the bearing. Yeah. Um, I think that's homework number two after gustatory rhinitis, Dr. Linda. <laughs> He's got his homework cut out for him. <laughs> We're hanging out with Dr. Rachel from Listerfield this morning. What is your science question? Oh, hi. I've got a question about temperature and how sometimes it can be 18 degrees in, say, Melbourne, but then you can fly straight to England and it will feel, um, won't feel as cold. Like I would feel it really puzzles me because it can be the same temperature, but it feels different. Ah, the um, word is habituation, Dr. Rachel. So example number one, um, athletes will train at high altitude for a while before going back down to low altitude and they find their performance is better. But even more subtly, they will train, for example, in Darwin. Suppose they're a marathon runner. Now, a marathon runner, the main problem is getting rid of the heat. So they'll go up to Darwin in a stinking hot season and very hot and humid and they will do marathons and it will kill them. And they will gradually, after about four or five months, get used to doing a marathon in Darwin. But when they come back to a colder climate, they can do a lot better. So it's the body itself is changing to adjust. But that's a long-term thing. Let me tell you about... And, and another example of a long-term one is uh, my brother-in-law, Bren, was in uh, Freiburg in Germany and we were in Sydney and we Skyped him. And we said, yeah. hello, Brendan. It's dropped to 15 degrees. It's so cold. It's all freezing. We're wearing jumpers. Yeah. And he said, oh, my God, we're just having a sudden little warm wave coming through. It's come up to 15 degrees, exactly the same number. And as yeah. a result, people are going into the parks and stripping off naked, which you do all over Germany, because yeah. it's so warm. So it was exactly the same number, 15. Yeah. And but, I, I can understand that when, say, you know, it's been 13, it drops to 15 and you will feel cold. But if you go from two different countries and the temperatures are very similar... 
it, it can feel really different. Well, part of it is that you're picking up what's around you. So if you get off the plane and everybody's wearing really lots of cold weather gear or at the other end they're stripped down to short shirts and a T-shirt, then you think, oh, wow, it's either cold or hot and then you will take that on board. The other factor that does vary is the humidity. That, yeah. So the number can be the same, but the humidity and also the wind and also the cloud cover. Oh, okay. Still can be yeah. the same temperature. Mm. So there's a whole lot of factors that go into perceiving the world around you. And as Richard Feynman said, the easiest person to fool is yourself. That's true. I remember always cloud cover always made it feel a little bit warmer when I was in England. It was like a nice little cloudy blanket. Oh, you're so romantic. I am. I really am. Hey, uh, Dr. Donna from Camden, what's your science question this morning? Yeah, hi, guys. I just wanted to, yeah, I just wanted to know, Doctor, about the flu injection and if it actually, being a byproduct, does it give you any symptoms of a cold or flu? Um, it should give you microscopic symptoms of the cold or the flu. Um, overall, with regard to vaccines, the only dangerous ones are the ones that you don't take. Uh, flu kills hundreds of thousands of people every year and you're better off getting the flu in- injection the vaccine than not. Now, the trouble is that at the moment, we've got uh, the problem that firstly, nothing made by humans is perfect, and that goes along with the flu vaccine. Number two, the flu virus changes all the time. So if you keep an eye on the flu virus, I say, oh, well, this year we're looking out for the H1N2 virus. And you think, okay, H1N2. And then next year they'll say, oh, this is the H5N7 and so the virus keeps on mutating all the time to change. And with the vaccines, what we've got to do is guess in advance what's going to be coming around and then start the machinery going and over six months produce millions of doses. This will be different in the future when we really get 3D printing up done properly and they can print the vaccine for you in the doctor's surgery on demand as you need it in five wow. minutes. Right, but we haven't got there yet. So the overall philosophy behind the flu, behind any vaccine relates to the fact that there's different branches of the immune system and some respond quickly and fade away quickly and some respond slowly and stay in there for a long time. So just looking at one tiny, tiny subset of the immune system, so I'll break it down from cells and chemicals into chemicals. We'll look at the chemicals and there's hundreds of chemicals, let's just look at one branch of chemicals called the immunoglobulins. Let's break it down even smaller and look at IgM. There's five, G-A-M-D-E. So it's I-G-G, I-G-M. If I am a flu virus and I infect you, you will respond virtually immediately with IgM and it'll be gone and you'll have Mm. no protection. It'll take a couple of days, maybe a week, for IgG to be produced And then IgG will give you big protection for a long time. So the purpose of the vaccine is to give you a microscopic dose of something that triggers you to make the IgG. It could be part of the virus live. It could be part of the virus dead. It could be another chemical that, by coincidence, is what your body can use to recognise the virus. It doesn't come from the virus at all. But the point is we want to trigger the specific IgG that will kick into action. The first time it kicks in, it's days. 
the second time, straight away. And so what you want is that full-on protection, but straight away, not after a couple of days when you're really sick or even dead. So depending on you and the virus, uh, you'll uh, get symptoms of it. But then it gets even more complicated again. Depending on what what virus you had as a child... Which bits of the flu virus? So the flu virus comes through your community and you lived on this suburb but somebody else lived in that suburb and you can say that they were identical twins. You were identical twin to that person but they were living in that other suburb. Because they got a different virus, your response as an adult will be different to the same virus when you both get challenged by the same virus as an adult. So you can see that it's not just a simple thing but it's more complicated. Jeez, but, it's experience as well. Yes. We, we've just discovered that in the last couple of years that a, a flu infection, infection that you got as a child interferes, it will, will judge your response to a flu virus as an adult. It is Dr. <sighs> Carl and you this morning talking science. We're getting through a couple more questions before the midday news. Peter from Port Macquarie, you have a question about eggs. Well, I do. Good morning, doctors. Hey. Dr. Peter. Um, Firstly, my almost five-year-old's listening, Macy, and she's a big fan, Dr. Carl, so I just want to send a little shout-out to Macy. Hello, Dr. Macy. You're my new best friend forever, even more than your daddy waddy. <laughs> um, back to eggs. Um, big fan of eggs and bacon. Um, got to be sunny side up. The yolk's got to be runny. There's always a fine line between making sure you cook it enough so that the white's fully cooked through or cooking it too much and then having the yolk turn hard. So I want to know mm. if there's an optimal surface temperature to cook eggs at so that the white will always cook through, yet the yolk will not go hard. Yes. Now, this depends. It's an individual variation, so you can't just give a number for everybody. Um, and it goes like this. What you need to do is buy an infrared camera that you clip onto your smartphone. Yep. And that will look specifically and only at infrared temperatures. I got one to see where the heat losses were in my house in winter. So now I'm fully double glazed every single window in a house in Sydney. Now, so all you get is this infrared camera and they range from $200 to $600. And then you start playing with it. Now, don't feel ashamed. People use technology such as clocks to work out how long to cook an egg for. So you can use an infrared camera because you will have what you want, the perfect egg. And you will learn the temperature with your infrared camera clipped onto the front of your iPhone or smartphone or random Android phone. That yeah, is the right. pathway. That's what you got to do. That's what you got to do, Peter. Do, but look, don't worry about it. People use clocks. You can take it one level higher, man. <laughs> Thanks for your call. Say hi to Thank Dr. You. Macy. Dr. Macy. Uh, well, look, that brings us to the end of the Science Hour for this week with the wonderful Dr. Carl, as usual. Oh, man, it's always a pleasure. Oh, come on. Wonderful Dr. Linda. (laughs) We're a team man. We try. Um, We'll be popping this hour online for you as always. If you head to the front page of triplej.net.au, you can listen back to them all as well at the mornings page of the Triple J website. Carl, we'll catch you next week.